Alright. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome everyone, youth baseball coaches, parents, players, 8020 baseball community. Welcome to this week's episode. In this week's episode, there's a big update regarding the drill design guide that can be found at 8020baseball.com and is free for all coaches. I have my monthly Dodgers report. Because I know a lot of you were thinking, Coach Bo, you haven't brought up the Dodgers in over a month. But I'm actually going to share something I saw on video the other day from their spring training that we should be doing with all of our players as often as possible. I'm going to share with you how we can help players set goals for the upcoming season and how to avoid this very common flaw that comes up when setting goals. I've seen this play out over the course of many seasons in that players will set goals for the upcoming season and there's a glaring flaw with it. And we'll discuss exactly how to avoid that and why we should avoid this flaw and how we can help our players set solid, effective goals. And the last topic that we'll dive into is how we can become better coaches by having a better mental game ourselves. And I'm going to discuss a specific part of the mental game that I think affects a lot of us coaches and holds us back from being better coaches. And it's a mindset shift. And we'll discuss that. We'll break it down in today's episode. All right. Speaking of mindset, most of you listening are about my age and we get to this point in our life where it becomes a lot more clear to us that we should slow down, enjoy each day. For me, it was becoming more thankful for each day and not taking each day for granted, slowing down, enjoying the moment. And I think there's two main reasons for that. One is just simply the age when we start doing the math. I look at it, I'm 43 years old. Statistically, that puts me on the back nine of life. So that's a real attention getter when you have that thought that, hey, I'm on the back nine. Hopefully I can live to 100, but statistically speaking, I'd have to live to 87 years old to still be playing on the front nine right now. So as the age gets to a certain point where you realize that you're on the back nine of life, you're in that second half of life already, that's really helped me slow down and enjoy the moment out there on the field coaching. It helps me keep things in perspective, not getting upset over little things, having fun. These thoughts can really help our mindset. They don't have to be negative. They don't have to be sad thoughts. They can be positive thoughts, pieces of motivation. And the second main thing that happens to many people as we get older is we lose people in our lives. They pass away. And when you read about somebody passing away, that might've been somebody you watched on TV growing up or an athlete that you remember going and seeing them play live or somebody that's been a big part of your life that passes away. It puts our lives in perspective. It puts, it puts time in perspective. And then something that can even slow us down more that can really move us to slow down and smell the roses, to slow down and enjoy the fun of being out there on the field, the moments with our kids, the little moments each day is when you lose somebody your own age or when somebody in your life passes away way too young. So over the last couple episodes, I talked about a grade school buddy of mine, Garrett, and Garrett passed away a few days ago and he had his family at his side. And I'm really sad for his family, really sad for his younger brother who's been keeping us updated on this, his parents. I'm really sad for his kids, probably more than anything. Over the years when I've lost somebody in my life, I've kind of developed a a two-part mindset coming out of that or moving forward from that. And that is one, to do my best to remember all the great moments 
all the fun times that I had with the relative, the family member, or that friend, all the times we laughed and smiled together, all the great moments. And then the second part that I try to do with my mind when losing somebody is I try to, I try really hard to use that as motivation to be better, to live a better life. And that's a way of having them live on through you. So Garrett, I met him in Little League and well, over the years, we've, you know, I've moved to Boise and he was in California and wouldn't see each other as much, although we all get together every single year, all my grade school buddies, junior high buddies, high school buddies. We've stayed close over the years as much as you can when you have, you know, a dozen or more friends as they get into their 40s. But we do get together every single year for a full day fantasy football draft, wiffle ball game, taco truck comes in, we do a whole thing, we do cornhole and we hang out visiting into the night. But Garrett was my roommate at Long Beach State my freshman year. And I think back to how he was as a friend and a teammate. And I don't know of any friend or teammate that smiled more than he did when he would see you. I'm not saying that he would always have a smile on the entire time he was on the football field or the baseball field or whatnot. But his consistency with a smile on his face when he'd see you, he always made you feel that he was happy to see you. And, you know, I didn't think about this until actually a few years ago when he started getting sick. And I thought, you know, he's not doing well. He's, he was very sick and he kept smiling. He just had such a positive attitude. He was one of those teammates that would always throw out compliments. Not so common, especially with teenage boys. Throwing out compliments isn't something that we see a whole lot of, unfortunately. Definitely like to see more. But he was a great teammate, a great friend, and he never threw shade on anybody. So over the last couple of days, I've had that extra boost of winning the day, of being present, the mindset that Life is short. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Also, to take care of the health. You get to a certain age. Now, just so you know, I'm not going to go too far into this. We, I'm trying to tie this in with how we can all be better coaches, parents, people. I'm a big believer in not just sitting there talking about your own self or you know, my own life. I want to tie it all together here. So waking up more motivated to take care of our health, to be present, and to have fun in life, to smile when we see our players, to be thankful and grateful for our opportunity to go out there each day. And I think it really helps keep things in perspective when we're out there and the umpire makes a bad call. Something that helped me with my coaching was years ago watching Band of Brothers and then the Pacific. If you haven't seen those two series, I think those should be required for seniors in high school to watch both of those for a couple of reasons. I won't dive into them right now. But it really gave me an appreciation for what was hard and what was sacrifice and, and what a bad situation was and what real bad luck is. And so going out to the baseball field and having a bad call by the umpire or losing a game, it seems so minuscule. And then I listened to the Jocko Willing podcast when it came out years ago, when it first came out. I listened to the first hundred episodes and you would hear these stories about real tough situations, young men losing their lives, sacrificing. And when I would go out to the field after listening to those episodes, it helped me keep everything in perspective. And I think when we're out there and I see coaches yelling at umpires or getting upset over a loss, I think the biggest gap from where they should be to where they're at, the biggest difference, the largest difference in that whole situation is how much importance they put on winning that game versus how important winning that game really is. There's such a huge chasm. There's such a huge gap. I think about a coach making a bad call, and then I think about simultaneously somewhere in America, some kid just got told they have terminal cancer. And I think we have to step back and keep that in perspective, and it really keeps us even keel. This is definitely not hocus-pocus mental health mindset stuff. This is the stuff that levels us out. It's a shift in our thoughts that changes our mindset. We have to shift and change our thoughts and make better habits with our thoughts. Well, how do we start doing that? Having that perspective, that wherewithal, that awareness 
rooted in reality can really help us stay even keel, grounded, and much calmer out there at the game. And when you lose a close friend and somebody whose age is substantially less than a life expectancy, it keeps everything in perspective. And here's what Garrett's brother said to us, sent us a message saying, and this was just a fantastic message, just came to us a couple days ago from his younger brother. And he said, hug your family, enjoy the moment. Life goes quick, slow down, enjoy it. And then I extrapolated from that saying, hey, let's keep things in perspective. Let's not get upset over a bad umpire call. Let's not get upset when our kid strikes out. So just want to share that with you and tie it into, I think, how we can all be better. I, I just know when I pass, I want people to, to be living a better life because of some kind of influence that I, I had on that, whether it's my own kid or those kids that I've coached or kids that I've taught. I want to pass along influence. And so with my friend Garrett passing way too young, I feel like the best two things I can do are, one, really remember those fun times, those laughing moments, those smiles, those things that we did when we were younger that brought us tons of joy. So now he's still adding joy to my life. His influence is helping me live a better life. So it's so he's not just gone and forgotten. I'm going to try hard here to transition to some more positive stuff. And this podcast, I've always had the mindset of it should be fun. I'm not going to get doom and gloom with anything. I'm not going to get negative. And I don't want to talk about myself very much. Although I could share lots of stories. I got a ton of fun stories with teammates in the past and baseball and all sorts of things. Players that even some of you know or remember watching on TV. But I told myself, I said, this isn't going to be about me as a coach. It's going to be using my experiences in baseball and use it as essentially kind of a calling to do this and then to help the youth baseball community coaches, parents be a lot better off than they otherwise would be without the messages that I share here that we talk about here on the podcast. It was a way to really give back to the youth baseball community to make it a much better place, not just with skill development and getting our players better with their swings and their pitching and their throwing and their fielding, but making it a much more fun experience overall for everybody involved. So with that said, I'm going to try to transition and I do have something on the up and up here. The drill design guide has been updated. Drill design guide 3.0. It got fully revised. I ended up spending 20 hours on it, just making it better. So if you have already received the drill design guide, if you've already gone over to 8020baseball.com, it's free. Just throw your email in there, your first name. I'm not sharing your email with anybody. I'm the one who deals with all of this. Nobody else has access to that stuff. You're not going to get spammed or sent a bunch of junk and your email is not going to be shared with anybody. Go over there and you can get the drill design guide 3.0 for free. It's right on the homepage, 8020baseball.com. I really like how it turned out. It has a lot of tips on there, specific tips that you can use, but it's the mindset. It's supposed to be a guide that changes and molds your paradigm of looking at a drill, not just looking at other drills that you see out there that you might want to borrow or copy. It also helps us be able to see the flaws in our own drills. It will also help you design drills from scratch anytime, anywhere, regardless of constraints and things like that. It lays out the specific ingredients, the specific components that make top-notch drills, that make elite drills. It's the recipe for building great drills. So I'm excited to say that is live at 8020baseball.com. Also, I'm going, I have updated five of the videos that are on the website and those will be added over the course of the next week. One is specifically coaching first baseman to save a lot more runs for your defense. Nobody touches the baseball other than the pitcher and catcher more than the first baseman. And I think first basemen save more runs than any other position outside of pitching and catching at the youth level. 
Not so much as players get older because the throws from the shortstops, third baseman, second baseman, those become better, more accurate. So your first baseman isn't relied as much upon because a lot of those throws are pretty good. Although there definitely are some errant throws, even at the major league level, first baseman needing to scoop a ball or two or come off the bag and make a play. But at the youth level, that happens every inning. So it talks about how to coach up the first baseman better defensively. The other videos will relate to pitching and helping our pitchers get better. One of the videos that's going to be updated here this week is helping tall pitchers be more effective. And for those of you that have teams and players that play at a level where the runners can steal, the power slide step video, I updated that. I'm excited to bring those updated versions. They're not just repeats of the same thing. They're supposed to be better. Always trying to get better here at 8020 Baseball. So the drill design guide ready to go, the 3.0 version, and I think it turned out a lot better. I think it's going to be very helpful when you're done reading through it. And it may take you 30 minutes to read through the whole thing. When you're done reading through it, I believe it's going to take your drill design game up another level. And for those of you that are newer to baseball or haven't been coaching for many seasons, it's definitely going to give you a huge advantage going out there, knowing at least what needs to be added or mixed in to make a great or elite drill. Doesn't mean you're going to go out there and do it right away, but at least you'll know the ingredients, the components that are needed, that are required for a top-notch elite drill. So again, that's on the 8020baseball.com homepage. You could pause right here, go get that. You could have that in less than a couple minutes for free. It's one. Of, it's a way for me to give back to all of you, to the youth baseball community. All right. I know some of you are sitting there wondering if everything's okay with the podcast because I haven't brought up the Dodgers in a month. Now, all of you know I'm a lifelong Dodger fan, but I'm more of a baseball fan. I've said that many times. I'm not going to sit here and talk about the Dodgers to talk about the Dodgers, but I saw something that we can all learn from and use, and that was Shohei Otani on this video that I was watching just yesterday of him at spring training just this past week, standing in while one of the Dodgers pitchers was throwing a bullpen, you know, a practice pitching session, and he was not hitting. In fact, there was no cage around him. In fact, he was just standing in, in the bullpen setting, simply to track pitches, to train his eyes, to track the ball out of the pitcher's hand better, to pick up spin, to pick up location much faster. Now, let me say this. Hitters should get in there with the helmet on. I prefer they get in there with the helmet on and their bat, even though they're not swinging. And they are learning and practicing and getting better at picking up pitches out of the hand. They're picking up the ball faster and faster. By having your hitter stand in while your pitchers practice, it does a couple things. One, it can desensitize them to that fear of getting hit by the pitch because now they're standing in there more often, right? How do you overcome a fear? You desensitize yourself by doing it more and getting more confident. Also, by standing in there and knowing that you're not swinging, that allows the hitter to have a little more confidence as they work through some of those fears of getting hit by the pitch without having to focus on putting a good swing on the ball. So that should give them a little more their mental resources towards deciding on getting out of the way or not faster if they need to. But that's actually like number five on the benefit list. The others are it helps them learn to pick up the ball faster and out of the hand so they can pick it up sooner and sooner and they can see a variety of release points. I would have hitters do aggressive takes. I wouldn't have them just have the bat on their shoulder. And this is how this gets wasted a lot and isn't utilized as effectively. Hitters should be up there in their game stance, should be ready to hit and they time up the pitches. So they're working on the timing so they can be on time. The hand should move a little. The hand should almost come forward a little bit 
an aggressive take. This really implants the mindset that the hitters are really timing it up. This really gives the hitter a better idea of their timing and are they on time for the pitch. So they want to have aggressive takes, not passive takes. They don't want to take the pitch. They want to watch it just go in with the bat on the shoulder and their mindset is not thinking like it will be come game time. So we want our hitters to have as close to a game-like mindset as possible without actually swinging the bat. Of course, we don't want them to swing in this situation for the obvious injury risks that are present. And we need to communicate this to our hitters. Hey, we want you thinking like a game without the swing. Aggressive takes, a little movement from the hand to mimic that game-like feel. All right, now we're going to take it two steps further than that. So if you have your hitters take are up there with the aggressive takes. So the aggressive take is like they are at the very initial part of their swing, kind of starting their swing a little bit. So we have the hitters up there, bat not on the shoulder, but ready to go. They're timing it. They're doing their full lower half timing routine and their hands might flinch forward. Their hands might come forward just a little bit. The bat might come forward a few inches to simulate that game-like timing. And here are the two other things that are going to take it to another level. The hitters should have in their mind their hitting approach, their hitting plan. Either it's less than two strikes or two strikes. And then I would have the hitters say out loud, yes or no, as soon as they have decided, should I swing at that or not? Of course, they're not swinging, but I would have hitters ready to go up there. Pitch coming in, yes. And as they say yes, the yes is coinciding with their timing, their lower half. So it's a yes or a no. And this isn't going to be easy at first, and there's going to be a delay at first, but it trains the hitters in their mind to say yes and no. Now, the trade-off is if the hitter is saying yes and they're not actually swinging, you start to wire the brain a little different than the game. So you don't have to do this every time, the yes and no, but I would test that out, the yes, no, yes, no, having them verbally say it. So there's some accountability to their pitch selection. Are they saying yes to the right pitches and no to the right pitches? So whether you do the yes, no out loud each time or not, that's up to you. I wouldn't do it every time, but I definitely think every third time that's something that can be helpful and it gives the coach listening some feedback. It also adds accountability to the hitter that they are actually deciding yes or no to swing at that pitch that they are working on their pitch selection, which is super important, of course. But when they're standing in for a bullpen session or when they're standing in for a pitcher before the game or when they're standing in during practice while their teammate is working on their pitching game, they should always have a plan in place. Either it's less than two strikes or two strikes. There's an article on 8020baseball.com that lays this out, that bullet points it out. These are the two approaches, less than two strike approach and the two strike approach. And so I saw Shohei Otani standing in while the pitcher was working on their pitch and it helps track pitches. It helps pitchers pick up the ball faster and then track it better. It helps them pick up spin and movement and just to see more pitches at higher volume. So it increases the reps that they see pitches coming in. Then I would have them aggressively with the bat off the shoulder, ready to hit mode, minus the swing, hit mode for every pitch so they can get their timing better. They can sync it up just like they would in a game. I would have them every once in a while yell out loud yes or no, depending on whether they should swing or not. And ideally, the sooner they can say yes or no, the better they're doing. And the more accurately they are with their yes or no's is, of course, a big deal. So they're honing in their pitch selection. Three, every single pitch that pitcher makes, they should be in less than two strike or two strike mode. Doesn't need to flip back and forth. I would stick with one, say, for five pitches and then go to the other for five pitches or 10 pitches in a row, then flip. My recommendation is the hitters 
start with the first five pitches, less than two strike approach. And then the next five, their two strike pitch selection plan, and then flip flop back and forth, five, five, five until they're out. They're probably not going to be in there for more than 20 or 30 pitches, depending on the time of season and how many pitches that pitcher's throwing or how many pitches are cycling through. Plus you got other kids that need to get in there and get their reps. All right, let's dive into these last two topics here, setting preseason goals and a quick discussion on having a better mindset as coaches so we can be more effective, more productive, and care less about being judged by other coaches. We'll dive into that in just a second. Just so you know, next week, we're going to talk about how coaches can set solid team goals for the upcoming season. So I'll share a great strategy for setting up team goals for the upcoming season, and we'll talk about the common flaw with that process. Next week, we'll also have a discussion about parents and players having some preference over who their coach is going to be in the rec ball level. Traditionally, the rec ball level is player tries out, coaches select. So if the kid doesn't have their dad or mom coaching the team. So a discussion about players and parents having some preference over their coach and not just having to play for whatever coach picks them. So having a little bit of a balance, like the coaches can pick their players, but also the players and parents can have some say over not playing for a coach. They've seen yelling and scolding players or, you know, overly focus on winning, not player development, or they've had a couple of their close friends say, hey, don't play for that coach. So I'm going to talk about that next week. Plant the seed with some of you and I'd love to get some feedback. We'll talk about that next week. And then top five coaching tweets of the month, top five posts of the month on X. Got some good ones. There's some really great wisdom out there, coaching wisdom. And what I I try to do is take those tweets and then kind of funnel them into how we can use them as youth baseball coaches to be much better at the youth level in today's day, in today's youth baseball world. And I have a great coaching quote of the week next week. So we'll get into that next week, but let's finish up strong here. Setting goals for the upcoming season. I think it's a good idea to have our players set a couple goals. I would keep a list of them as a coach, just on a Word document or just on a note or something that you can keep track of that. You can print it out and just have it as one of your pieces of paper on your clipboard when you go out to practice. Season goals for each player. My recommendation is that players don't set more than one goal per facet of their game. So if they pitch, one pitching goal, one hitting goal, one defensive goal, infield or outfield, and one base running goal, and then one team culture goal, one hitting goal, one pitching goal, one defensive goal, one base running goal, and one team culture goal. For example, I'm going to give out at least two compliments at every practice to a teammate. There you go. Now, this dives into the big common flaw, and I'm going to tie it into that last goal I just shared right there. A common flaw would be this. Now, you'll pick up the difference on these two right here. The first one was, so the team culture goal, or I recommend calling it a better teammate goal. That's the category this goal would fall under. So the example I just gave was, I am going to give out two compliments to my teammates at every practice and every game. Not to every teammate, but just two in total. Let's be realistic here. When players set goals, I've seen this over the years, 90% of the time the goal will sound something like this. My goal is to be a better teammate. My goal is to be nicer to my teammates. My goal is to be more helpful to my teammates. Those are vague. They're not specific. And that's the number one flaw that I see when we set up the goals. When the players set up goals is that they're not specific enough. The second major flaw, kind of a bonus flaw, is they're results oriented. They are into the year oriented. For example, a hitting goal, I'm going to bat 300. Now there's a lot of problems with the hitting goal saying, I want to bat 300 this season. One, the goal is set for the end of the year rather than what they can do in practice this week 
the goal needs to be something they can work on every single practice, every single game. I am going to swing at better pitches. And you could even get more specific. Every time I get a pitch in my hitting zone with less than two strikes, I'm putting a good swing on it. That's a really specific goal that can be used at batting practice, that can be used at the games versus I'm batting 300 this season. I'm not even going to get into the flaw of the batting average stat, which doesn't account for walks and scores a single the same as a double or a triple in terms of point value. So that aside, it's an end of the year goal. I don't like that. I'm going to get 30 hits this year or 50 hits. I'm not saying those are terrible goals. It can be good motivation for players, but I think the goal needs to be more specific. Every time I get a pitch in my hitting zone, and then we need to outline what their hitting zone is. They should know what their hitting zone is. That's part of coaching up the hitting plan. For example, with less than two strikes, a pitch that can be driven, hit hard, a line drive, you're not battling with less than two strikes. Save that approach for two strikes. So it needs to be specific. Pitching, I'm going to have an ERA of two or I'm going to win five games. Those are not the goals that we want to set. They're not specific. I am going to take a full breath before every pitch. That's a good goal. A mechanical goal could be every pitch I'm going to do X with my delivery, maybe that massive flaw they're trying to work on in their pitching mechanics or pitching delivery. And again, the goals need to be set to best suit the player, but they should be specific to something they can work on every single time they get in the box, every time they're on the mound, not just an end of the year goal and not just a number or a statistic. So I recommend they set five goals if they're pitching and most youth players pitch at least a little bit. One for hitting, one for pitching, one for defense, one for base running, and one for being a better teammate. They write them down. And as a coach, you can keep those, shrink that font, keep it all in one sheet and bring that sheet with you to practice to your assistant coaches. I recommend having the players share it with their teammates. Adds a little more accountability and increases the likelihood that they'll stick with it knowing that their teammates know what they're working on. Now, the teammates aren't going to remember all the goals of all their teammates, but by sharing it verbally, it solidifies it more. So five categories, one goal each, specific to something they can work on at every single practice. Focusing on the process, not setting a goal towards the end of the year results or some statistical result. Again, I'm not saying those are bad. They're just not ideal for player development on a day-to-day, practice-to-practice, game-to-game basis. All right, let's finish here with something that's super helpful when it comes to the mindset. When we go out to the field as coaches, it's very common for us to think that we're, we're being judged. Our drills are being judged. Our coaching strategies are being judged. How we're sitting there on the bucket, where we're standing, what we're saying, how much we know the game or don't know the game. I think it's natural for us to feel like People are judging us, the other team, the other coaches, maybe another coach in your league that's been successful, maybe the parents. As the season is starting off for a lot of us and is in the not too distant future for the rest of us, we must avoid thinking about what other people are thinking. Unless it's a player that comes up with a serious complaint or a parent that comes up to you with a serious issue. Outside of that, we need to clear the thoughts that we have about other people's thoughts. And the good news is, and one way to do this One way to walk out on the field and not care so much about being judged and how you're running your practice and how you're running your team and whether you should have sent the runner or not is first and foremost, other people really aren't thinking about us. They're not really thinking about us that much. We're all too busy and focused on getting through life, going through our own struggles, getting ourselves better, taking care of all the things in our life that we need to focus on and get done every day. People are not sitting around thinking about us. They're not sitting there judging us. And even if they are, Those are the people that we should care the least about what they think. If you're in the bleachers, unless it's something that has to do with physical health or an injury that could be prevented or some serious mental health thing that needs to be discussed, as a coach, it needs to be blocked out and ignored because spectators are not in the arena. 
So there are those caveats to it, but they're not in the arena. So, hey, why take their advice? They're not out there in the trenches with you. But more than anything, people at the game, they're thinking about so many other things. They're thinking about so many other things. They're not sitting there judging your coaching skills and what you should or shouldn't be doing that much. And this goes back to also selecting and putting together a team as a coach that have parents that are on board and they compliment coaches and they respect coaches rather than criticize and go behind their back. So that's a big part of that too. But I think as the season starts, I think many coaches feel like people are watching and judging their practices, their drills, their warmups, their team. But if we step back, I think we'd all agree that we greatly overinflate the actual amount of thoughts and judgments that are coming our way. At the end of the day, it's important to understand that these thoughts that we're having, our perception that other people are thinking about us, that these thoughts are never productive, except for when someone gives us honest feedback to our face, especially someone who we can trust, who has been there, who has shown up, who's consistently also had success or been in the trenches with us, or if it pertains to preventing an injury or a mental health issue. I'll say this, in summary, we should catch ourselves when we're out there thinking that others are thinking about us and judging us. We should redirect those thoughts into a much better practice, into creating a better practice, a better environment for our players. In order to be a better coach for our players, we need to first understand that people are busy. We're all busy trying to get by, trying to be better versions of ourselves, dealing with our own challenges, struggles, jobs, families, health issues. To have a whole lot of time to sit around and think about other people and judge them. So I think our perception is overinflated. We perceive others to be judging us as coaches much more than they are. And if they are, let's not give them that energy, that focus. Let's give it to our players. Let's give it to our kids. Let's conserve that energy so we can be much better coaches. So I just want to wrap up the episode with something that we all go through to different levels when we go out there. I think taking feedback is super important, but let's be careful not to default to thinking that everybody else is sitting there thinking about us and our coaching ability and skills and strategies, etc. All right, let's take that focus unless it's urgent and very pertinent. Let's take that energy, that focus, those thoughts and put it into being a better coach. Next week, I'll share out that great strategy for setting team goals. Today, we talked about player goals, but we'll talk about team goals. I'll discuss the discussion I had on X last week with some other coaches about parents and players having some preference to what coach they play for, what team they're on, the trade-offs behind that. There's definitely some interesting things to talk about here. I want to plant that seed and I hope it actually gets a discussion coming back my way about some of your thoughts on that. So we'll dive into that next week. I think that could be a overarching thing to work on in the youth baseball community. And I'll share out my top five coaching. We're switching it now. It's now we're going to call it the top five coaching X posts of the month. So until next week, everybody, hey, slow down, enjoy today, take care of your health so we can be there to take care of our families. Let's slow down and when we see our family and close friends, let's smile and really enjoy those moments. And let's take this information that we've talked about today. Let's take it not just out to the field, but let's take it out to our day-to-day lives. With that said, it's always great being here with all of you. Send me your emails, go get that drill design guide 3.0, ready to go, fully updated, 8020baseball.com. Go get that. And until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.